anyone who's watched or listened to the news in the last who knows how long, it feels like every other day there's some sort of tragedy, whether it's an attack, whether it's a natural disaster, something unfortunate happening, something bad happening, someone doing something bad and people in pain and people being hurt. We can get away from it, even if we're not directly impacted, which most of us are, but someone we know is impacted. And that's why this episode of Mental Filter, I think, is just super relevant. To me, it was fascinating and interesting, but it's also very relevant, very practical, whether we're in a disaster or not. It answers questions such as, how would I respond? What is it like to be in a disaster? God forbid. What happens in the immediate aftermath? And who's there to help? And then how could I help? You do not have to be a professional to be able to help someone. And if we can come together and everyone can feel a little bit empowered to do something to help someone else, whether it's a loved one or someone we don't know, we would all be better off for it. So I had the opportunity to sit down and talk to someone who is an international expert on this disaster work, crisis work, has been around the world in, in thousands of different types of disasters. And we can each take something from it. And I hope you will find it interesting and hope you'll be able to gain from it. Now, before we get into it, I just want to say that this episode is sponsored by the Consult Real Estate Group. Now, Consult Real Estate Group is a specialized group. They do strategy, design, innovation, and building all part of their consultancy. They partner with commercial, residential owners, developers, and they are so good at streamlining each project they define, they clarify, and they edify the entire design and building process from the pre-architecture phase through project completion. Consult ensures every piece of the puzzle is perfect and the final picture profound. Their unique programmatic systems, owner representation, specialty services know-how, and punch lists cover every variable and finesse detail. So they specialize in a range of residential, commercial, like I said, high-end outdoor projects where some of them are really, really cool spanning the fields, education. So they've done schools and uh, temples and hotels. And so these big projects, but also down to offices and, and residential projects as well. I personally know them. I've gotten some consultation from them and I can say they are on top of every single detail. And so there'll be no stone unturned and it'll be worth every single penny. So whether you're a developer or whether you're an owner or whether it's residential or commercial, and you have this project and you just really want it to go as smooth as possible, then I recommend that you reach out to them. So you can look them up online. Again, it's Consult Real Estate Group. You could call them 917-929-2440. We'll have their links in the description of it. And you can also go to info at consult, which is C-N-S-L-T-G-R-P.com. All right, without further ado, this is Mental Filter. Welcome back, everybody, to The Mental Filter, where we have uh, interesting conversations with interesting people all through the lens of mental health. And I am really looking forward to this episode, as you heard it in the introduction. This is all about crisis and psychological first aid. And a lot of times, most of us aren't prepared for it and what happens when things do happen and who knows how we're going to react. So I will allow my co-host for today to introduce himself. Avi, please let everyone know who you are. Thank you so much, Shmuel. So my name is Avi Tenenbaum. I was originally born in the United States. I've been in Israel overseas since age 17. 
I'm approaching 40, so more than half my life I'm here. I went to university here. I studied social work, disaster management, leadership. I went to law enforcement school. Voluntarily, I participate in patrol here in the Israeli police. And I'm also an EMT. I also help the different security units here during wartime, help them train. And I'm very intimately involved, sometimes more than I'd like to, in crisis, the field of acute stress reaction, which is like, how do people show up to terrible events right when they happen, as they're unfolding, right afterwards? I like to approach these uh, topics from the level of being a mental health professional, but also being a first responder and kind of putting all the pieces together. I enjoy talking about this and thanks for having me. It is my absolute pleasure. So we have tons to talk about. So let, let's just start like from the ground up here. So you have a lot of different training in this like macro level trauma responses or crises. Is this something that you always were drawn to or it's like, oh, I'm almost 40 and like, how did I get here? You know, I, I never was asked that question before. I've been on a lot of podcasts. <laughs> I think I'm drawn naturally to chaos. I was a chaotic kid. And <laughs> stepping into absolute chaos, bedlam, insanity, I feel comfortable there to a degree. If it's sad, if it's crazy, if it's disorganized. I got in a lot of trouble when I was a kid. I was thrown out of a bunch of schools. I used to cause all sorts of trouble and spray paint walls and getting fights with gangs and stuff. And I think that's at least part of it is I, you know, feel comfortable going into a CPR, into a murder case, a suicide, a fire. I'm like, okay, yeah, you know, makes sense to me. So little did you know that that was all preparation for what you do now. <laughs> it was definitely preparation. And little did I know, because I didn't know at all. There were some significant stops along the way. One of the big ones was in 2006 in Israel, we had the second Lebanon war. Now, it's not the first time that I was in war or intifada because I was in Israel a number of years before then. I knew people personally that died in bus bombings, shootings, stabbings. But it was the second Lebanon war that I got really angry. And my anger propelled me into this field. What happened was that war took place during the summer. And all my friends and I were playing basketball. We were eating pizza. And all these regular people, children, families, they were being bombed up north. And it didn't make sense to me that my country's in war, people around me are in war, and we're busy playing basketball, we're indifferent, we're not empathic to what's going on, we're not participating. It was very bizarre because I grew up in Chicago, and if you told me that Indiana was being bombed and Chicago was eating pizza, that would be strange. Anyway, so to make that long story short, I went up north as close to the front lines as I could, and I saw the explosions, munitions were falling around me, and I said, okay, now I kind of understand what's going on. Now my job is to get back home and to see where these people are being evacuated and to help them out. So that was like the first stop where I said, oh, okay, people are in crisis, and let's see how to help them. And I ended up volunteering, helping them out and saying, okay, I don't know how to help them out, but I wish that I learned how. And that kind of propelled me into psychological first aid. That's fascinating. Okay. So I have a couple of questions on that one. You don't have to answer this if you're not comfortable. So if 
you're drawn to crisis and you're like almost like your comfort zone is is crisis does that mean that if you were like sitting on a beach drinking a mai tai would you be going out of your mind because it's too calm i wouldn't be going out of my mind in the way that i enjoy peace but i would maybe lack purpose if i did that for too long and there's actually an amazing american army psychologist named Colonel Dave Grossman, and it's not his concept, but he talks a lot about this concept in his books. It's called the sheepdog metaphor, and it's used to explain the mind of first responders. And it's quite interesting. And it basically says that there are people that don't seek violence and have no capacity for violence. There are people that seek violence and want to hurt others. They want to prey on society. They want to rob. They want to kill, manipulate And then there are the sheepdogs, which are these people that on the one hand, they have a code of morals, but on the other hand, they do have the capacity for violence or chaos. And they're able to stand in front of the sheep and protect them from the wolves. And so think of a police officer, think of a paramedic, anybody that's kind of walking into danger for somebody else. And they're choosing to do this. It's not because of the pay. It's not because they want to be popular. But it's a calling and it's drawing upon their personality and ability to walk into that place and arrange it and make it better for somebody else. The metaphor for me has always been very, very interesting and and eye-opening. That is very interesting. Does that mean that in this metaphor, does that mean that there are not everybody is capable of evil? Does it mean that not everybody's capable of evil? I mean, I mean, is there the belief, like some people say that the belief is like, well, everyone under the right circumstances is capable of, you know, turning into oh, a monster. I or, see. Or, or, I is see. The, or is the idea is like, there's like the spectrum and there's some that are just not, there's some that are, and then there's this like middle ground where, like you just said, the sheepdog. That's really interesting. And I'm, I'm getting so warmed up for this conversation because we can take them in so many places, uh, sociology, anthropology, psychology, But I did study theology for more than 20 years, very seriously. And I will answer that I think that evil, if it's a construct, it's on a continuum. I think there are some people that are able to perpetrate the worst evil directly. They're able to murder somebody else with no justification other than, you know, I needed an extra 20 bucks and they were getting in my way. So I just killed them. And then there's other people that may be perpetrating evil by standing by, not doing anything about it, not reporting it. So I guess everybody falls somewhere into the category of free will. They can make better choices, worse choices. And altogether, we can collectively suffer or we can collectively grow if we all make better choices together. Right. I wasn't expecting you to bring that up, but that's really interesting. I wasn't expecting to bring it up either. <laughs> so you never know where these conversations are going to go. Okay, so I, I want to get back to really a, so, sort of our, our our topic at hand, and I, I want to you know make it clear you know to you and to everyone listening that as we discuss this, I sincerely hope that people you know part of the goal is that it, this is not just like this you know stimulating discussion, but it's also something that's practical for people both on the individual level and on the community level. So is it fair to say 
and we'll talk about like what crisis is and what psychological first aid is in a second. Is it fair to say that your work encompasses, you're doing it both on the macro level, on the community, broad city, community, country level, and on the individual level, or are you mostly focused on the broader macro level? Jeez, you're hitting target every time. Your questions are solid. <laughs> I try to teach psychological first aid on a micro and macro level because they're both needed. I think that trauma and traumatic effects affect countries, they affect communities, neighborhoods, nations, families, individuals. And so there's a tailored intervention on every level. When you talk about 9-11 and you talk about the president of the United States getting up there on ground zero and he gives a speech and he says, you know, uh, God is with us and we're going to give it back to the enemy. We're going to see who did this to us. When you do something like that, you're doing what's called on a macro level, grief leadership or crisis leadership. And so somebody in Oklahoma, Alabama, New Zealand, anybody that somehow is affected indirectly because they're a member of this nation, they're an expat sitting in New Zealand, or they live in New York and they had a loved one that was injured and everyone in between. Uh, that's on a broad level. And so community leaders can learn how to help people during crisis on that big level, crisis communication. But then on the most individual intimate level, if it's that you're a therapist of somebody, or maybe you're a paramedic, and you just walked into an unresponsive 18-year-old who overdosed, and his girlfriend is there, and you know not only how to give Narcan to the young man who overdosed, but you can also, when you're available, speak to the girlfriend and help her out because she's terrified that her loved one is dying. What's going to happen? You know, how does this make sense? What am I feeling? So it's every level from the smallest to the biggest. Right. Okay. Thank you for that. And okay. So building off of that, let's get some basics here. What is the 30 second definition of what psychological first aid is? Psychological first aid is some pretty cool techniques and also a lot of common sense that all together is operationalized in a way that anybody can walk into the craziest situation and help somebody else out in an orderly fashion without skipping a beat. They'll know exactly how to get in there, exactly how to help. They'll see what's needed and get it done efficiently. And to be able to like triage and, and move along the process of what needs to happen to help people. Now, how exactly. is that different? And some of the people listening are, I think, therapists, clinicians. How is that different? And I'm pretty sure that it is than therapy, possibly for PTSD, which is a much longer late. Like there's a big difference between in the moment, the first aid, the triage, the immediate response and therapy. How would you describe to a layperson what the difference is? Yeah, so there's a ton of differences between therapy and psychological first aid. And imagine in the scenario that we just said that a young man overdosed and his girlfriend is standing there crying, afraid that he just died, what's going on? And so she's not yet ready to go for therapy. Maybe she'll go in two weeks, maybe she'll go in two days or in two years. But we know that right now there's a CPR going on for that young man or he's getting some sort of medical treatment. And she's standing on the side, frightened. And so getting in there and doing an intervention with her on that level, we don't even know her name. She's not paying for it. The intervention might be 20 minutes long. 
Maybe she didn't even develop symptoms yet of trauma because, you know, she is going through a crisis, but she doesn't have a month and a half of flashbacks and intrusive thoughts, nightmares, bedwetting, or who knows what symptoms that there could be. She just right now is petrified that her loved one is dying. And so there's all these differences. Even if you ask me what's the difference between two weeks after the crisis and a month, there's still so many differences. Psychological first aid is generally given for free and it is not symptom-based, although we can be prepared if they have symptoms, but it's more what do we perceive somebody might need in a crisis and we'll give it to them now so that if they have a hard time later on, we were helpful to them in the beginning. Something like that. So the goals are different. Yeah. The goals are different. There was a big summit in, I think it was in upstate New York in 2003, where a lot of traumatologists from around the world got together and they said, if we ever have another 9-11, for example, and tens of thousands of people need trauma therapy and there's not enough experts and we want to help them right now. We don't even want to wait until they have symptoms. Let's get in there right now. Maybe that will be more beneficial if we help them earlier than later, which is a subject of debate, but what would they need? And does it depend on their age? Does it depend on the type of crisis? Does it depend on their culture? Let's perceive the elements that most people are going to need most of the time, and we'll cover our bases, and then we'll teach this to non-professionals so that now all of the paramedics and the police officers and the school teachers and the, the ministers and the rabbis, they can help out until a traumatologist is needed, if they're needed at all. And so it's really like first aid, right? You have a whole continuum of healthcare where you have doctors, surgeons, nurses, rehabilitation centers, trauma centers, hospitals. But before that, you have an ambulance. And even within the ambulance, you have a paramedic, you have an EMT. And so we're kind of teaching people how to put a tourniquet on somebody because there's a car accident and they're bleeding out. Let's put a tourniquet on them until the expert comes. When the expert comes, he'll know how to put it on better. I'm sure he's much more trained, much more skilled. He'll know how to maybe give them all sorts of medications, get them to the trauma center. They'll do surgery, give him blood, etc. So we're not replacing psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, or anything like this, but maybe it's the step beforehand. And arguably, maybe if we provide this in the beginning, they will need the healthcare system later on less, which may or may not be true. And I don't even need it to be true, but it might be true. He's saying there's, there hasn't been enough research yet to... to... Yeah, yeah, you, you picked it up fast. Meaning, I don't need to stand in a soapbox and promise if we give people help early, they're guaranteed that they won't have any PTSD. I, I don't need that to be true to still get in there and help somebody else out. I think it's the right thing to do. And we're talking about teaching it to people that are anyways unseen. And I can tell you the opposite. I spoke to a firefighter paramedic in the United States a few months ago, and we were talking about psychological first aid and the need for it. And he said that they came with uh, a whole crew to a man who, I think he died from alcohol poisoning, but I don't remember exactly what he died from. He was in rigor mortis. 
and his wife was there, wife or girlfriend. And they came, they attached the monitor. They saw there was an asystole. The guy wasn't alive. They declare him dead. Okay, we got to keep going. And they just left this woman there. And her, you know, husband or boyfriend of many, many years is dead. And they just leave her there in the middle of the night and move on. And she's got no family and she's got no friends. And they didn't know how to say it and what to do with her. And it skips over this whole part of humanity of like, there's a human being whose partner just died. What do you do? And it could be they did have to move on. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't have moved on because maybe there's a boy who's allergic to peanut butter and he needs the EpiPen right now, you know? So I'm not saying somebody else should die because you're busy doing PFA with this woman, but maybe if you had an extra half an hour, there's uh, a few really neat things you can do that can change her experience of the worst day of her life. It uh, can change her life, not to change her, her experience. And, and and that's exactly the word that, that came to mind. It's like, this is just like humanity. And whether yeah. or not, like you said a minute ago, whether or not a research supports that this person won't develop PTSD because it's just humanity. And, you know, there's... Yeah, we, we, we know the ideas are evidence-informed. That's for sure. And it seems like we're not harming anybody. Are we fixing all their problems forever that they'll never have PTSD? I don't know, and I hope so. But what I know is, God forbid, if we would be in that situation, would we want to be standing outside, you know, next to the fatal car accident where our best friend died, and we'd be standing there in the rain alone, or we'd want somebody to say, hey, my name is Avi. Is there anything I can do for you? Is there anyone you want to be here with you right now? Do you have any questions? Can I get you something? And there's obviously a lot more to it than that. But even if it's just that gesture alone, I think it's huge. Yeah. Yeah. Now, okay. I don't want to go too much down this route, but you, you sort of, you sort of alluded to that is, you know, there's a difference between a traumatic experience and PTSD. Right. And, you know, I would like to hear more about different types of disasters and, and traumatic scenes that you've been at to give people listening an idea of the variety but like, why, if you can explain to people, why is it, whether it's with first aid or without first aid, you know, you can have 10 different people who have a very similar experience, similar traumatic experience. And, you know, eight people don't develop PTSD, two people do. What's the difference? And there's probably not one neat answer to it. But why might it be that some people do and some people don't? Yeah, this is a great question. And it's not only an interesting question, but this is a super common question that I get when I'm doing disaster work. Sure. And it's the type of calls where I'm showing up four or five days later. And now all the victims of some big event are comparing the way that they're faring with other people and saying, how come they're not shaken up like I am? What's wrong with me? So for a lot of reasons, this is important to talk about. I'm pretty sure I have a video about this on my YouTube channel, which is Avi Tenenbaum PFA on YouTube, also Instagram, Facebook. Look, let's start with the simplest reason. Everybody's different. And that sounds so cliche, but that's really the reason. And we all have different personalities. I do believe somewhat in personality psychology and the big five personality traits. We're different. I mean, anyone that has a bunch of kids and they grew up in the same house, Aside that they're all, you know, growing up at a different year, at a different stage in their parents' life, 
but they just literally come out of the womb different people. It's amazing. So people are different in their personality. People are different in their understanding and interpretation of what they just saw and what does it mean and what does it mean about their safety what does it mean about who they are as a person etc so there's so many reasons why we're different that i will actually challenge back why on earth should people experience any traumatic event the same i like to really stick it back in the opposite direction some people are naturally more resilient some people aren't, but they already went through a number of difficult things in life and they learned about how to manage strong emotions or they learned that life isn't as nice and fair as they thought it would be, etc. Yeah, I, know, I hate to break it to you, Shmuel. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so some people are further in that game, but, uh, further in the learning, behind in the learning, and therefore everyone's just really different. Also, there's a lot of studies. I think I mentioned this in the video there also. There are even studies out of September 11th where depending on your physical proximity to an event, that's how you will experience the event trauma-wise. And so if you and I are watching a fatal fire, we're like, oh my God, the 7-Eleven is burning down. People are trapped inside but you're closer to me or I have a stuffed nose that day, which I really have a stuffed nose right now. And you don't, and you can smell terrible smells of people burning. And I can't, you're going to encode that and experience that differently. And I'm not, you're going to hear a scream that I can't hear. I mean, the, the reasons go on and on also risk factors. This is the last one I'll leave you with, but there are obviously in psychology in the field of what's called disaster behavioral health. There are tons of studies on, what makes people more at risk to be at trauma or more protected? And so the more risk factors you have going for you, like if you were born into a terrible family that abused you and you had poor mental health and you have no friends and you stutter and you have no money and you have no health care. So you're more prone to having a really hard time and processing this, getting through this than somebody else. So. A lot of reasons. So, okay. First of all, to, to the point you made before that the whole, almost like the, the sensory experience leaves an imprint. That makes a lot of sense to me because yeah. that we all can, you know, you play a certain song and I'll immediately be brought back to a road trip. I went on with my friends in high school. Oh and yeah. That there's that, there's that imprint that makes perfect sense to me. And it's interesting what you said. So maybe you're referring to like, you know, the aces, you know, which, uh, you know, Could be. All those like risk factors, you know, for trauma. But it's interesting that even if it's an unrelated trauma, so like you said, if I grew up in a chaotic home and abuse and whatever my risk factors are, and then I'm exposed to a different traumatic event, that will leave me vulnerable to have a poor reaction to, to that trauma. Yeah, I, I have to jump on that for a second. Why would that be? I'll give a tiny example. Imagine that somebody's father is an alcoholic and he's always screaming and getting drunk and insulting this kid. And this kid grows up believing I'm worthless. Nobody loves me. And now he's in a traumatic event that involved the, you know, Alaska airlines door flying off in flight. And he gets off that plane and nobody checks in to see if he's okay. And what does he feel more than other people? Nobody cares about me. And it reinforces that belief that I picked up when I was a kid. 
So there's all these really fascinating connections between everything in life and everything else, including, for example, childhood trauma and a door flying off of a plane. So absolutely. That's a great example. So before I ask my next question, I'd ask you to take a minute or two and just um, share some of like the, the variety of experiences you've had dealing with disasters and and traumas around the world, I believe you've been involved. Yeah, I've definitely had a variety and I don't want there to be any disasters in the world, but I get invited often to get involved and make a difference. And so I've been involved in different capacities to over 2000 different types of domestic disasters. So it's fatal bus accidents with fatalities or several injured or terror attacks, shooting, stabbings, rammings. It could be fires. It can be industrial accidents. And then there's also larger scale uh, events, which we might call an MCI in English. I think in Hebrew now, so I have to think in Hebrew what I want to say and flip it into English, but mass casualty incident death involving tens of people, hundreds of people, thousands of people. So whether that's a hurricane or whether that's a war or whether that's an arson fire that caught fire to a massive building with hundreds of residents. And so being involved in these different events, being involved in them on the level of doing this type of work was one experience. Being involved on the level of an EMT is a different experience. So I got to see that as well. And then at one point I said, how on earth are uh, law enforcement officers supposed to trust me when I'm teaching them? And I don't know what it's like for them. Let me go learn what it's like to be like them. And so that kind of threw me into, I see there's a smile on your face. It's interesting. You're going to ask a question about it. I see. But that got me to say, okay, being a police officer in this event is one way. I'm experiencing it from there. EMT is a different way. Uh, disaster behavioral health specialist is a third way. And being a, an individual is, a, is another way, just being a person. And uh yeah. So really firefighter, firefighter. Are you a firefighter too? I have mad respect for firefighters. If you're watching this and you're a firefighter, invite me over to your station. I love you guys. You're amazing. But I felt I didn't need to do it for some reason. I think in the United States, fire and emergency medicine meshes together mostly, as opposed to where I am in the world where it's like super separated but with the firefighters that I deal with, they're mostly in countries where they're also in emergency medicine and we have enough in common. So works out. Okay. So now that you share this experience, I have this, like, I'm, this is fascinating to me. I hope it's fascinating to people who are listening, but you know what? It's fascinating to me. I love like hearing just like the trends and the factors that go into it. And it's just very interesting to me. So now with being in a unique position where you've been invited and involved in different capacities with so many different types of disasters. Two-sided question here is number one is what are the commonalities? What are like the themes? Like, is there an underlying theme to disaster, to trauma, whether it happens to be a, a natural disaster, a terrorist, a, you know, an attack? What, you know, there's so many different, what are the themes uh, is there a commonality to whether it's across cultures, people, different type of disasters that how people react and what it does? And then on the flip side of that, and this is probably a longer answer, is like, are, are there differences between a 
different types of disasters, whether the disaster is a natural disaster or an attack. There's so many different types of, unfortunately, you know, bad things that could happen. It could be a car accident, it could be an overdose, it could be a, a shooting in a school, it could be, you know, a volcano, it could be anything. And then finally, I don't know if you'll remember all these questions, and finally, is there in your work, do you find that there's a difference when someone experiences a disaster as part of a group? Or as an individual, like you gave the example earlier of a woman whose husband, you know, tragically died. And that's a very lonely as opposed to someone being in the Alaska Airlines. And it's like, we're in this collective, maybe, maybe we didn't all react the same, but we're in this collective where now you're in Israel and there is this national disaster. Is there a difference, whether it's individual versus, you know, large group? I know I said a lot there and... Oh, well, so, okay, I'm going to try to go back to the first question, but we have to get to all three of the questions because they're all solid. I think that on a certain level, there's a universality and commonality to how human beings go through hard things and what they need to go through it a little bit better or easier. So, you know, whether it's, a collectivist culture and individualist culture, whether it's older people or younger people, uh, Eastern hemisphere, Western hemisphere, I definitely think that when people are offered support, it's helpful. Now you wanna know what type of support and what way to offer them support, there's gonna be cultural nuances, but I think we all need each other as human beings. I think you can't escape that fact. I don't care if you're into evolutionary psychology, if you're into religion, if you're, however you approach it and, and spin it, people need each other and we operate better in each other's presence. We can help each other out. We can regulate each other's feelings. I can make you food and try to get you to eat when you don't want to and you're too busy to make food. So there's definitely that. There's definitely also studies that say that when we're in something together, it affects one another positively or negatively. And that's like the whole study of sociology is that people influence one another. So I don't know if that's a big novel idea, but tailored to the idea of disaster behavioral health, if we have a household of people and somebody died in a drive-by shooting in this family, and everybody else didn't die, but they're all struggling with this loss, this traumatic loss. So if I offer therapy to somebody in the home and now he does better, so the better that he does, it may help other people do better. Or if I am a big drug user of illicit drugs and I say, hey, I know you're Mr. Brother, try some cocaine, right? And now I get you to use drugs and now you're using a maladaptive coping mechanism for your pain. So now other people are likely to join as well. So it's this two-sided sword in that way. What else are we missing in your questions? Because you had a bunch of really good questions there. Well, I asked you, so you answered about the commonality of themes, and then I oh. asked you, like, are there differences in the, you know, in types of disasters? Yeah, so there is. So there is. There is definitely differences in the type of disasters, which is different than the question of, well, let's go back a step. 
if we all were by a volcano on the level of the individual, if some people feel more helpful and other people more feel more helpless, then that also is going to be a difference in how people experience that volcano. And so if somebody um, knows the geographic area and is like, hey, we got to run from this volcano. I know a safe place. So he feels that he has some self-efficacy. He has something he can do about it. And you're just a tourist. You've never been here a day in your life. You've never been to a real volcano. The tour guide knows what to do, but you don't know what to do. You don't know where to go. You don't know how to get around. You can't even speak the language in order to tell people, hey, where should we go? That's on the level of the individual. But going back to the type of disaster, we find in studies that when there's interpersonal interaction, so it's a rape or it's a stabbing, it's a robbery. So then there's malice. There's evil intent from a human pointed towards another human. And that has a searing, profound effect that a volcano can't have. And just like I can be there for you on your hard day and I can say, hey, Shmuel, are you okay? I care about you. Is there anything you need? So also a person can rape the same person and use their evil intent to hurt the person. It's the same idea, but the other way and say, oh, you thought that people care about you. Actually, they'll rape you just to enjoy a few minutes of physical pleasure, regardless of your feelings, regardless of your pain, regardless of your horror. So it can go a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a researcher, but I, I could imagine that if God forbid I was in some sort of disaster, I could in my head, I might be able to process and wrap my head around the fact that, oh, there was this horrible, I don't know, I was in a tornado and I'm homeless now. And, you know, I lost somebody in my family, horrible, but I can like process and wrap my head around that a little bit easier than someone coming into my kid's school and shooting up the place and God forbid one of my children dying. That to me, again, hopefully I'll never have to deal with that. I can imagine I would have a much harder time processing that than a non-human related disaster. A hundred percent. And and I'm going to, I'm going to jump on that and say that I've found by talking to disaster survivors that the crazier and irrational it gets, like the example of the school shooting, why would somebody go kill 10 kindergartners? How does that make sense? What did they do to him, etc. which there is a logic to it, by the way, a twisted logic. There are interesting books about that. But let's say to us that didn't study this, it makes absolutely no sense. What that sometimes does is it pushes survivors into a corner where they're forced to adopt all sorts of bizarre beliefs because human beings have a need to make sense out of things. And this makes absolutely no sense. And therefore, this thing must be my fault. This must have something to do with me. And, and they get into very strange corners that they otherwise wouldn't have been in because there's no easy scapegoat. And that's where you see a lot more survivor's guilt and all sorts of, I could have, would have, should have done this, done that. You know, if my kid who said he was, my kid said he had diarrhea at night and I let him go to school in the morning because I thought he was trying to get out, you know, of school. And I let him go to school at anyways, even though he wanted to get out and then he got killed and it's my fault. 
Yeah, it's, it's so sad to watch and, you know, to see what people... So you remind me of this, like, okay, I, I, I want to... Before I say the story, I just want to say that I'm not espousing any, I'm not preaching. It happens to come from a religious source, but I'm not standing on any sort of soapbox here. But it's an interesting story. And you mentioned way earlier on, you mentioned purpose. So I read in this book, there's this book written by this rabbi, Rabbi Blach. It's like, if God is good, why is the world so bad? Uh, I picked up the book like a million years ago. And I just one thing that I remember from the book is that I remember in his book, he wrote in his introduction... He wrote a little bit about that he once gave a talk somewhere um, about, you know, tragedy and how we deal with tragedy. And a woman came up to him afterwards and told him like sort of her story and how she had tragedy after tragedy. And she said at a certain point, she subscribed to, I believe it was David Kushner. I think it's David Kushner, who was a rabbi, I believe, at some point, And he himself, you know, suffered some tragedies in his life. And basically, and again, I'm not espousing religion, but basically he came to the conclusion you know, maybe God created the world, but after that, it's just like, it's just spinning and running on its own, and he's not involved. It's basically a crapshoot. And this woman told this Rabbi Bluck that, you know, what I came, I, that's almost like what you're saying, like, I have to sort of wrap my head around and come to something that I can live with. And you know what? It, it's a crapshoot. And if it's a crapshoot, then there's nothing to be upset about because there's nothing running the world. It's just like, you know, we're spinning in space and who knows what's happening and why it's happening. So I have nothing to be mad about. But then she told Rabbi Blah, and this is how it can maybe be maladaptive for some people, is then after a while, I realized I got really depressed. Because like you said in the beginning, purpose. Then I get really depressed. Okay, now I have no one to be mad at, but there's also no one to be mad at. There's, there, there's nothing there. We're just like spinning in space and there's like no purpose to anything. So for her, I completely understand and even this uh Kushner uh I mean I can understand what someone a human being sort of has to like feels they need to get to a point where they can sleep at night but you know there's a cost and benefit to every step that we take to get to that point so you just reminded me of that story which I found very very interesting yeah you know I, I never studied the psychology of religion too much in depth but I remember one of the findings that you're reminding me of where Basically, anything in our mind, any cognition, any belief of any type from anywhere can be a blessing or a curse, depending on how you spin it, how you use it, how you apply it, and how it's modified by other beliefs. I could say in the field of loss and grief, meaning-making is imperative, absolutely imperative. The books behind me on the, on, on the shelf, I have some of the books from David Kessler, who was the protege of Kubler-Ross, who was famous for her steps in grief. And to, you know, to really make sense out of something, even though to me it may not make sense, but you in your own personal way, in some bizarre way, you've justified why you had to see what you saw, experience what happened, or lose the person that you lost, even though you want them back and you don't wish that on anybody else. There is that process. And we see that when people go through that process, they heal. Yeah, so it's very important. Although when we talk about acute stress reaction and PFA, psychological first aid, we usually don't get into that space because it's way too early. Right. Agreed. Agreed. And I'm not going to, we're not going to go down that route, but I did find so interesting that it's already been a while that several years ago, I came across Pauline Boss, 
and her ambiguous loss, which I find so, so interesting. And there's a lot more of it than, than. There's a lot of ambiguous loss in PFA, by the way, right? Because when I was doing some disaster work with mothers of Ukrainian soldiers or spouses whose loved one is missing in action. Well, that's ambiguous. If I ever thought of ambiguous mm -hmm. or there's a child who ran away or went missing. So we don't know what to do about that and what to decide about how we want to proceed. And it's one of the challenges of working with people in acute stress reaction. Although, of course, we can still support them. And there's always going to be what to do to help everybody in their type of loss or circumstance. To so, the degree that we can. I appreciate that. So for a minute, what I'm going to do is, because I know we're going to be up against the clock soon, I want to put the mirror on you for a minute. And then I want to try to walk away with some practical things and have some practical questions for people listening. So for someone in your position, and I've in, in past positions, I've had a hard time myself dealing with some, you know, heavy, intense, negative things. How do you stay grounded when you're exposed yourself as a helper, but exposed to a tremendous amount of loss and tragedy and, and evil, uh, you know, so you can, I, I can see it because I felt it. You can easily get consumed with the, the the bad and the evil that's in the world. And then on the flip side, someone, again, someone who's a helper and someone who's actually a, a skilled helper can also get pulled into his like, you know, almost into like a little bit of a savior complex, like, okay, you know, I'm here, I'm saving the world here, which is also not necessarily helpful. So what, what have you experienced and what helps you stay grounded? If you're willing yeah, to this is, <laughs> No, absolutely. This is integral. When I teach my course in psychological first aid, we have like four hours on self-care because you can't go into the fire and, and walk out unscathed. It's impossible, but you can treat your burns and you can decide how much to get burnt and how often and what frequency, what temperature. <laughs> so there's a lot that goes into watching ourselves when we do this work. I mean, it's, it's too much to answer easily, okay. but let's say one of them is the decision of what proximity or relationship do I have to the family whose baby didn't wake up in the morning? Am I going to have sympathy and I'm going to feel as if I lost my own child and I'm not going to let myself put this down and I'm going to walk around for seven days in a row thinking this way, or Am I going to engage in the first place saying, hey, this isn't my loss. This isn't my child. It's absolutely terrible. It's heartbreaking. I may not be able to eat for 10 hours after, but it's not my loss. I'm going to get in there for an hour. I'm going to do what I need to do, and it's going to help them. And then I'm going to step out and hand that over to the next person. So there's that decision of the relationship, the connection that I have to the tragedy. That for sure is one of the many things we can talk about. There's learning how to regulate my own emotions. There's learning about my own burnout. There's me going for therapy. I, I almost never need long-term therapy. I pretty much just need one session every once in a while to like restart my engine <laughs> and find the good again and that type of thing. I could tell you that after the Mayron civil disaster, where I worked with over a thousand people, 
in a week. And it was exhausting. Just to jump in. So for people who don't know, that was a large gathering that, to keep it short, just there was a, a stampede. Yeah. Right. And by the way, those are very common. You know where there's actually the most stampedes in the world, I think, the most mass casualty stampedes is in Mecca. Really? Yeah. There's a lot about that. Well, we won't go there. We won't get into it now, but stampedes are pretty common, more common than you think. But I worked with over a thousand people who were in that stampede, who lost a friend that died or were trapped in the pile. Somebody died under them and they felt like I killed him. My body weight suffocated him. I was having a difficult time. I went for a week, nonstop, running groups, running initiatives. And after that week, I had a good friend who's an American psychologist. He was living in Israel at the time. Uh, he knows a lot about trauma. He, you know, he was a nice guy. He said, Avi, I, I see you're doing all the stuff. If you need any help, just give me a call. And his name is David Green. And I said, I'm giving you a call. Help. And I came over to his house. We spoke for a little bit. He made me a big barbecue. And that's what I needed. I needed some TLC. I needed a place to cry and to vent. And after that, I was back in action. I think all human beings should learn what sets them off and what they need to do about it to get back in the game. Whether it's trauma and doing this work or being a lawyer, being a, a family court lawyer. I mean, it could be anything. That's how this is really practical because, you know, we're listening and we spoke for almost an hour now about trauma and disaster. And it's like people listening, oh, I don't necessarily experience disaster. You know, everyone has heard of disasters, that's for sure. But this is exactly the point that it is very practical because the best way that a person can be even prepared is to be self-aware, is to learn about themselves, learn what buttons they that get pushed and being able to name them and then being, being able to ask or get some help when you need it, which takes a certain amount of vulnerability to be able to just say, hey, someone, you know, I need something. And unfortunately, not everyone is necessarily, you know, okay doing that. So I, I want to build off of what you just said and go full circle to something you said all the way in the beginning of how you got into this, because you remember playing basketball and like, how could we sit here and play ball and have a barbecue? And whatever it is, and there's people that are suffering, there's people suffering all over the world, right? So I deal a lot with anxiety, right? So when you talk about people being, you know, prepared for situations, I'm automatically thinking of people who are uber prepared, you know, they're on, um, what was that show? Um, Dooms Preppers. <laughs> there was a show, oh, Dooms, yeah. right? And you're like, okay, let's be prepared for everything. Let's not have a life now. So we prepared for everything and that, you know, obviously that's an extreme. My question or statement is, is that I think it's important for us to be able to, and you alluded to this without saying the word of compartmentalizing, that, you know, right now you're in a disaster zone, like the whole country in Israel, whatever you believe in, wherever you are, I'm not going to get into that. We're living in disaster zone and there's some horrific mind boggling things going on. Now, does that mean that life should stop? There should be no celebrations. There should be no enjoyment. We should all be sitting on the floor in sackcloth. And, and I, I would think that you would say no. And so back to like when you were younger and playing basketball, it's important for people to hear that two things can coexist. You know, you can coexist yeah. with having a pleasant, happy feeling. And that doesn't negate 
that you don't care about tragedy going on. I mean, I have people who are, they're anxious and they feel guilty that they're not, you know, dropping everything and taking care of like water in Rwanda. I mean, listen, I tell them like, I can give you, if you need some ideas, I can give you like a hundred other good initiatives around the world. So why don't you take all your life savings, sell your house, live on the street so you can donate it to, you know, wonderful, worthy causes around the world. There has to be some. So I just like if you could speak a minute about that balance, the compartment, compartmentalization of, you know, emotions and experiences while you're caring and also living life. I think it's very important for people to hear. Yeah, sure. I mean, first of all, one of the most important starting points is sustainability. I can never give away too much of myself that I fall apart and can't give any more. At the same time, I shouldn't be greedy and hoard for myself when I could be giving more and I'm indifferent to the pain of people around me. And so I try to give what I can, but part of being resilient is also knowing when not to give, knowing when to laugh, knowing when to chill out, go out for a coffee, play a video game. It's all true. And, you know, that's why we have boundaries in helping professions. And that's why there's a way things have to be done. Because if it's just unfettered good energy and good vibes, then we're going to cease to exist. And we can make a much bigger impact if we can show up to work every day and help 10 people than if we burn out every two weeks and have to take a week off of work and then say, hey, helping people isn't for me. Let me be a truck driver, which being a truck driver, by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. But why burn yourself out and switch a profession when you started having a mission, you wanted to help people out, but you just didn't pace yourself the right way. So sustainability is huge. Continuity is huge. We barely touched in this talk about resilience. And part of resilience is keeping the show going, making a routine within the chaos, having a laugh within the chaos. There's so much to talk about, Shmuel. We we can go on for hours, but one of the models out there that was actually developed in the United States is called SPR. And SPR is a model for a prolonged disaster situation where there's no therapist showing up for weeks and weeks and weeks. And how do you continue to help people? And what does that, in that stand for? Skills for Psychological Recovery. Thank you for asking. And, and one of the things they talk about there is such practical things like, you know, in order to be happy people, we go bowling, we go to church or synagogue, we go shopping and run into our friends, we go swimming, we, we pick up our kids from school. But there's a disruption of all of those things when there's an earthquake, let's say, or a war or a pandemic. And suddenly you're not running into your friends at the YMCA. You're not running into the other moms at soccer practice. And you didn't ever realize how much you needed those things to regulate you and to feel good and to feel belonging and feel happy. You know, and there's only so much pain and suffering that you can take and you can watch on the media. You need soccer. You need a break. You need painting. You need classical music because it's different. And that's so important. And so realizing that to be happy, strong, resilient people and actually, there's a million things that go into that, and we take it all for granted until the second we don't have it, and to learn that about ourselves, and during crisis, keep that going, keep that happening. You know, it, when you talked about Israel, and you see people trying to create morale, and they're going to these 
different artillery bases and they're bringing them pizza and putting on DJ music, you know, disco music, electric dance music. Like, what's the point? But there is a point because these people are away from their families. They're away from society. They're dirty. They can't shower for weeks in a row. They're in a precarious, physically dangerous situation. There's a lot of unknown. Their businesses are faltering. At least give them pizza. At least give them some electronic dance music. These things are really big, really big. Yeah, it's and and we don't know. We we can't know what it means to someone. We think it's just pizza, you know, pizza. I mean, I have this story, and we'll finish over this. I have a story of a client I used to work with who was almost ready to follow through on suicide on a bridge, and it just so happens a person walked by from his grade who he wasn't really friends with, and he got into conversation, and he wound up. They went to Chick Fil A, and he got him a milkshake. And he told me, I say, he's like, that milkshake saved my life. Wow. And it was a milkshake, right? So it's like, wow. it's pizza. You don't know, like, literally, he's like, the milkshake saved my life. So we don't know. And sometimes we'll never know. He's fortunate he got to be told, but we won't know necessarily what we put out there. So yeah, we could talk for hours. This is like so, so good. I mean, maybe we'll do it again. And we'll talk about resilience. Like this is fantastic. In the meantime, how could people, you know, if someone does want to prepare more, someone wants to learn about psychological first aid or anything else that you talked about for you and like what you do, how could they, what, where would you send them? Okay. So first of all, the easiest place to start is my website, psychotraumaunit.com. I have a free downloads page. There's like at least 10, maybe 15 free downloads there that you can download and, and read different interesting ideas that you can use right away during crisis. I have tons of free content on YouTube. I think I even have a few four or five hour long workshops there. And you can just watch that for free on how to give psychological first aid. I have hundreds of YouTube shorts. If you want to learn this in a different way from within the United States online, I mean, there is a online course from John Hopkins. They have a model of PFA called the rapid model. I have a lot to say about it, but it is interesting. And then there's another organization in the United States called the NCTSN, which stands for National Child Traumatic Stress Network. They have their model of PFA. I give a 16-hour course in psychological first aid where I try to bring all the different models around the world and kind of blend them together and show the advantages, disadvantages. I try to put out a lot of stuff about psychological first aid, but I do want to say that what you said about your suicide story with this client, it's really easier than you think to change people's lives. And there's really a lot more people suffering than we realize. And learning how to open our eyes and knowing what to say or not to say, what to do and not to do, how to step in there, use our presence, use our words, our care, our empathy. We can literally save lives like you said in that beautiful story. These are really important things to learn. If you also want to be a doomsday prepper, so we can talk about that in another episode because it's a fun hobby of mine. But I think scenarios of crisis are way more common than you think because you're going to know somebody that they just told you that they're going through a divorce and you're the first one they shared it with or they got into a fender bender, they're shaken up or their brother is hospitalized for some serious thing. It's actually the volcano. I don't know how often that happens, but the other ones, <laughs> the domestic ones for sure happen a lot and we should know what to do in those situations. 
Okay, fantastic. Thank you again very, very much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Shmuel. Great questions, too. This was a lot of fun and looking forward to working with you more in the future.